0: Apply for complete details. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
1: Precious Lord.
0: Take my hand Lead me on Let me stand I am tired I am weak I Take my hand, precious Lord. So
1: in darkness, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Whereas in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. The wonderful news we share is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the yoke of bondage was broken. Jesus came to deliver the sick and to heal the wounded. He came to break the oppressor to set the captives free. Jesus is our Lord. Now Today, we know in the midst of this time of great wickedness that God's government will be established in fullness and that every burden and every yoke will be broken. And as he comes in glory, returning, as no longer the baby in the manger, but now as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we will rejoice in righteousness and in justice. Hmm. I'm very concerned about this issue. I've been looking at it and praying about it and asking the Lord Would you do this work in my heart? What work? Breaking every bondage of sin. Establishing his rule over my life. I no longer have any interest in pursuing my own course. I no longer have any desire to be in charge of my life. I have become A bond servant of Jesus. I have given up all rights to my life, to my body, to my mind, to my possessions. All belong to Jesus. Now, as we do that, we have to come face to face with that old human nature. And it has to be removed, it has to be destroyed, it has to be broken because we can't be free and walk in bondage. The government of God was to break the bondage. So Jesus came talking about setting the captive free. Now, you may not think of yourself as a captive, but let's look at the scriptures, and let me be very specific about what I believe we have been captured by and what it would mean to be released. In Matthew, the 7th chapter, this is the closing part of the Sermon on the Mount, he reaches the climax of his message. And he says, do not judge. This is Romans 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. That word judge in the Greek literally means to separate and put asunder. To separate and put asunder. So Jesus is coming and saying, as he closes out this Sermon on the Mount, do not separate yourself from others with an attitude of superiority. Do not cast judgment and push someone away. Now you're going to see what he means. Verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, in other words, in the same way you cause separation, in the same way you push away and cut off, you too will be separated from God. You too will be put asunder from the kingdom of God. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in this very practical message called the Sermon on the Mount, he comes to the conclusion of his message and he begins to talk about what will separate you from another, what will put you asunder from God. Now, it's so astonishing to me that men and women can pass such horrendous judgments one on another and separate one from another with such foolishness, with lies, with accusations, and then think that they can continue to walk with Jesus, in fellowship with Jesus. It doesn't work that way. Now he's going to become very specific and he's going to talk about exactly what he's saying. Verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3 of the book of Matthew. Why do you look at the moat or the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the beam of or the plank, in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank or a beam in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank or the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this friend of ours has got something in his eye. It's only something very tiny. What Jesus calls a speck of sawdust. But it's very painful. And how helpless he is until it's removed. Many times I remember as a child playing outside and getting something in my eye and going inside to my mother who would take a Kleenex with a point on it and very carefully remove that speck of dirt that had somehow gotten in my eye. My eyes would be watering. Sometimes as an adult, I've gotten an eyelash in my eye and my eye's watering and it hurts Got to find a way to wash it out. It's painful and you're helpless until it's removed. Both eyes will water up and you can't see properly. And it is surely our part as a friend to do everything we can do to help another. And how grateful that person is when we've succeeded in removing that speck of sawdust from their eye or that eyelash from their eye. And we would be equally grateful to him if he performed the same service for us. So in light of that, it's clear that the real point of this well-known passage in Matthew 7, 3-5 to 5, about the beam and the moat is not the forbidding of our trying to remove the fault in another person, but rather the reverse. It is the injunction that at all costs we should do this service one for another. Well, its first emphasis is obviously that something has to be removed from our eye. Let me read it for you again. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So it's not saying walk away from your brother and let them have speck that troubles their eye and causes them not to be able to see. That is the command of Jesus. So how do we get at this? Well, I want to make a suggestion. Everywhere in the New Testament, we are told that we should help our brother or our sister that we should do anything we can do to make their journey easier. To bring healing, to pray for, to admonish one another, to exhort one another. We're even told to wash one another's feet and to provoke one another to love and good works. The love of Jesus poured out in us will make us want to help our brother in this way. It is the normal life of a Christian to be constantly trying to help a brother or a sister, even in the removal of a fault. Well, we challenge one another as we're led by the Holy Spirit. The story is told of a humble Swiss man, Nicholas of Basel, one of the Society of the Friends of God. He came a long distance, walking, crossing a mountain to Stroudsburg, and he entered the church of a very popular preacher in that city, and he said to him, before you can do the greatest work for God, the world, and this city, pastor, you must die. Die to yourself Die to your gifts, die to your popularity, and even die to your own goodness. And when you've learned the full meaning of the cross, you will have new power with God and new power with men. Well, it was a humble challenge to this pastor, this doctor. And he set about to find how he could die to all of this and in the process of deep repentance. He became a great factor in preparing the way for Martin Luther and the Reformation. So in this passage, Jesus tells us we may do this service one for another. But the first step of helping a brother or a sister is that we cannot try to take that tiny moat, that tiny piece of sawdust, out of another person's eye when there is a beam, a great length of timber in our own eye. When that is the case, we haven't a chance of casting out the moat in the other because we can't see straight ourselves. And in any case, it is sheer hypocrisy to try to do this. Now, all of us know what Jesus meant by the moat in the other person's eye. It's some small fault, and we think we can discern it. It may be an act he has done against us, or some attitude he adopts toward us, or it may be a way he responds to other people, it may be something unclean that he is doing. But what did Jesus mean by the beam or the plank in our own eye? Is it possible that the beam in our eye is simply our unloving reaction to the other person's speck of sawdust? Without doubt, there is wrong in the other person. But our reaction to that wrong is even more wrong. The mode in him has provoked in us resentment or coldness or criticism or bitterness or evil speaking, gossip, ill will, all of them variants of the basic ill of Lack of love. And that, says the Lord Jesus, is far, far worse than the tiny wrong, perhaps even unconscious wrong, that provoked it. A mote means in the Greek a little splinter, whereas a beam means a rafter. And the Lord Jesus means by this comparison to tell us that our unloving reaction to the other's wrong is what a great rafter is to the little splinter. Every time we point one of our fingers at one another and we say, it's your fault, we have to remember, as my dad used to say to me, Raymond, you have three fingers pointing back at you. So is your brother at fault or are you even more at fault? I pray God will have mercy upon us for the many times when it's been so with us and when in our hypocrisy we've tried to deal with the other person's fault when God saw that there were far worse things in our own hearts. But I don't want you to think that a beam in your eye or a plank in your eye is necessarily some violent reaction on our part. The first beginnings of a resentment is a beam. It's also the first flicker of an unkind thought or the first suggestion of unloving criticism. Where that is so, it only distorts our vision. And we shall never see our brother as he really is, beloved of God, if we speak to our brother with that in our hearts. It will only provoke him to adopt the same hard attitude toward us. For it's the law of human relationships that with the measure ye meted out, it shall be meted back to you again. now i want to i want to talk more about this this is so vital to understand i see in my brother or my sister some small wrong but i may see it as a huge wrong i may see it as something absolutely wicked and horrible why because of what it's causing to spring up in my own heart. Because of the resentment it stirs in my heart. Because of the judgment it stirs in my heart. Now part of what God has been dealing with me on that is so utterly painful is I have these hidden parts in my heart. I don't even know they're there until supposed wrong is done to me. And then there is quickly a resentment that comes and a desire to justify myself and a desire to explain why I'm this way in a manner that says I'm right and you're wrong. It comes out with my wife comes out with others. It's always been a part of my life. One of my favorite haunts was for many years, if you come and criticize me, I'll turn it around and I'll make it your fault. That's sin against God. That's a beam in my eye. And part of what I've had to do is get on my face before God and sometimes I've only felt like weeping and have done so. Recognizing that in my own heart has been this pride that springs up unbidden and says, No, let me explain. You just don't understand. If I can explain it to you, you'll you'll know how wrong you are and how right I am. What wickedness. What evil. How can I help a brother or a sister when I've already judged them and I have put them asunder from me? I have positioned them as the enemy that now I have to deal with. I've done that many times in my life. And it's very painful for the person who is put asunder. And I likewise have been put asunder and judged by many people. And they're so right in their judgments and I get hit over the head with their beam, their plank of timber, and they administer the beating. David Wilkerson, one of the finest men I've ever known in my life. He was for many years my pastor before he passed. He was the one who founded with me, with Jesus, the National Prayer Chapel. He gave many thousands of dollars to help us when we were just starting. But I was sitting with him in his office one day and he was he was very down. I could tell he was just very, very discouraged. And I said, my dear brother, I've not come to tell you all the things that I need help with. I've come today to just pray with you and encourage you. For Jesus loves you. You have been so precious to his heart. And I just spoke words of love and encouragement. Tears formed in his eyes. I said, tell me what's happening. He said a whole group of pastors, about 15 of them, came to see him. He met them in, in the conference room. And he said, they came to tell me all the things that I've done wrong and to tell me that I need to change, that I need to change the way I preach and that I need to change the way the Times Square Church is operated. And then they said, Brother David, we'd like to anoint you with oil. And we'd like to pray over you that the Holy Spirit will convict you of the things you've done wrong and that you will be forgiven as you repent. Well, he figured the only way he was going to get them out the door and off his back was to let them anoint him with oil and pray. He didn't want to do it, but he did. He knelt down. They knelt around him. And one of the pastors brought out a bottle of olive oil and he proceeded to empty the entire bottle on top of his head. Now, it so happened that day he was just wearing a new suit. The oil dripped down and ran all over his clothing, his shirt, his tie, his suit, drenched him. It was a whole bottle of olive oil. Got on the carpet. He said everything in him wanted to rise up and speak curses against these men. But he said the Holy Spirit would not let him. He said the Holy Spirit said to him, do not judge them. Just respond with kindness and gratitude. And I have anointed you with my oil. And so he did that. He kindly thanked them for their prayers and for the anointing with oil running down his face and sent them all on their way and then went to get cleaned up and actually had to throw his new suit away and his new tie away and his new shirt. He just took it all off and dumped it in the trash. But he said, Ray, I had no feelings of bitterness or anger toward those men. But I said, you are discouraged, aren't you? It still hurt your heart. Yes, it did hurt my heart. But I can't allow the hurt in my heart to turn to judgment and bitterness against them. I said, David, you are a much better man than I am. I would have grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and tossed him out the window. (laughs) He laughed. No, Ray, we love our enemies and we do good to those who persecute us. It was a valuable lesson for me. You see, when those feelings of resentment begin to rise up, they're unclean. When bitterness begins to rise in our hearts and anger, self-justifying anger, begins to rise in our hearts, we are made unclean. And then if you act on it and begin to yell at your children or yell at your wife or yell at your husband, Or you get angry and turn with coldness toward someone at work and say, I'm just going to put them in the refrigerator. I'm not going to talk to them anymore. They are done in my life. I cut them off. You have become unclean before God. And the way you judge, you will be judged. The way you put them asunder, you will be put asunder. So when coldness and criticism bitterness or evil speaking or ill will they arise in our hearts it's because we are unloving and that says Jesus is far worse than the tiny wrong that has provoked our feelings now I've always believed that feelings are just that, they're feelings. They're they're not right or wrong, they just come unbidden. I don't believe that anymore. I've taken my feelings before the throne of God and I've asked him to change the way I feel about it. I no longer would want to say to anyone, it's your fault. I don't want to judge And I've had to repent and humble my heart. Brother Ed, who does all of our IT work and selection of sermons on days there's a rebroadcast, he said Sunday in the fellowship at the National Prayer Chapel, we went around, everyone had an opportunity to, to share what Jesus was saying to them. Brother Ed said, I'm learning to say I like humble pie. In fact, I need double servings of humble pie. Humble pie tastes really good, Pastor. (laughs) Oh, to be able to enjoy humble pie as we enjoy apple pie or chocolate pie. I say that because my wife's favorite pie is chocolate pie. Only we would learn, <coughs> pardon me, if only we would learn, if I would learn to enjoy humble pie. Because when I retaliate against a supposed wrong, or a very real wrong, my vision becomes distorted. I've been treated in the past with such unfairness by by some with lying judgments with accusations and if I speak to that brother or that sister with the same hardness back it only provokes more hardness between us And measured out to me is judgment. Is it all right if someone judges me? Is it all right if someone speaks to me in a manner that I'm uncomfortable with? Is it okay if someone says things to me that hurt my heart? Is it okay with me if someone cuts me off and says, I don't want to ever speak to you again? Is it all right with me if someone says to me, I don't like how you operate and I'm not going to be a friend of yours anymore. I am separating from you. Is that all right? Or should I have some hostile response? No. The first thing that I must do is recognize that any unloving reaction to that person is sin. Is sin. And then on my knees, I must go with it to Calvary and I must see Jesus there and finally begin to see what sin cost him on Calvary. And at his feet, I must repent and be broken and trust Jesus to wash away that beam in my own eye. He shed his precious blood in order to fill us with his love for one another. And he will and he does if we claim his promise and stand by faith in that promise. And then we're probably going to have to go to that other person in the attitude of repentance and tell him of the sin that's been in our heart and what the blood has affected there and ask him to forgive us too. Now this is an extremely dangerous thing to do because sometimes when you go and share with another person the sin that has been in your heart, they will feel like they've been accused and uncovered and they could become very angry and cut you off and not talk with you again. That's their responsibility. Our responsibility is to respond with love and courtesy and not be triggered into rage and anger and bitterness. Sometimes bystanders will tell us what they see in us, but sometimes it will be our own heart. and the sin that we must confess. We may not think it's nearly as bad as the other one's wrong, which they're not willing to confess. But when we've been to Calvary, we are learning to live under the shadow of the cross of Jesus And we've seen our sin there and we can no longer compare our sin with another person's sin. But as we take simple steps of repentance, then we will be able to see very clearly how to cast the speck of sawdust out of the other's eye. For the beam in our own eye is gone. And in that moment, God will pour light in on us as to the other person's need. And very often there is no need of any removal of a speck of sawdust because in reality what we saw was simply an extension of our own wicked and bitter heart, demanding that people treat us in a certain way. I don't have a right to demand that. We may see that the moat we were so conscious of before is really non-existent. It was simply what we thought. Or, on the other hand, we may have things revealed to us about a person. Things that they're not really conscious of. But then as God leads us, we move with love and humility to speak to that person so that he can see the damage in his own heart and see the fountain of sin that they could find deliverance to. But do you see, that's a very different situation than trying to justify myself trying to give reasons and excuses, trying to put up walls of protection, trying to block another from the path they desire to follow. If we are humble of heart, and the love is very evident, (coughs) many will be grateful to us for kind words of correction. but they must see that there is absolutely no selfish motive in our heart, but only love and concern. When God is leading us to challenge another person, be bold and do not fear to speak with them. But don't argue or press your point and don't take your attitude with you when you talk with them. And however they respond is okay. You're not responsible for how they respond. We simply speak to that person and then we leave it right there. It is God's work, not ours, to cause the other to see the sin in their heart. It takes time to be willing to bend that stiff neck. I heard one person talking about a conversation they had with one they were close to, and this person confessed that they were quite stubborn. Now the automatic next question is, when are you willing to become unstubborn? Are you willing now to leave your stubbornness that you're Talking about? Well, no, they weren't. Well, it's not my place to convict someone of their stubbornness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I can love them and I can speak the truth in love to them. And then, in turn, when we are challenged, let's not defend ourselves. Let's not explain ourselves. Let's not make it the other person's fault. Let's take it in silence. Let's thank the other person, and then let's go to God about it, and let's ask the Holy Spirit what He thinks about this situation. If the person was right, and the Holy Spirit confirms it, and we confess it and make it right, then let's go to the person that shared with us and thank them and praise God together with them that you're now free of this burden of sin. There's no doubt that we need each other desperately. I know I have blind spots in my character where I don't see things in me as clearly as my wife sees them or a friend sees them. We must be prepared to hear honestly who we are, and we must be willing to be a channel for God to use. I'd like to take you, in the time remaining, to the book of Colossians, And I'd like to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is when we're bought back when the judgments against us are broken and we are restored to fellowship with God and with each other. Darkness is when we are hidden like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they would not come into the presence of God but rather hid in the bushes. When people say, it's unsafe. What they're really saying is, I am a coward and I am afraid to share my true thoughts because I'm afraid you will judge me. It's not their business whether they are judged. I can't stop another person from judging me. What I can do is stop Jesus from judging me by choosing to respond in love and courtesy and kindness to every person I speak with. We have been brought into the kingdom of light. We have left the kingdom of darkness. It says in verse 15, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. That is, he is exactly like God. He is God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. It's these very things that he created that turned into such evil. Lucifer, the star of heaven, turned into the devil. killed him. They murdered him. His own people murdered him. Oh, they used the Roman soldiers, but the Jewish leaders of that day murdered Jesus. He was before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Oh, that means I don't have the supremacy. That means I humble my heart and I bow in submission before him, even in these little things of choosing not to treat someone with coldness and bitterness because they have been hostile to me. One man has deeply wronged me. I've had to make a very conscious choice that if I see him again, I will not treat him with disdain and coldness. He did a great injustice. He lied about me. He convinced others to believe that lie. He committed a great sin against me. He did great damage to me and to the church. But I've had to go to Jesus and pray that through and say, do I have a right to treat him with judgment? And the answer is, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't have to be abused any longer by him. I don't have to allow him to hurt other people that I'm close to. I can draw boundaries. But I do that without judgment without bitterness, without coldness. I choose to walk in Jesus. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him, that is in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body and through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, This is the gospel that you heard and that it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And then in verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We may proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. All of the treasures of heaven are hidden in Jesus Christ. and I want you to know today, the Holy Spirit wants to do a mighty work in your heart with those hidden resentments and things of bitterness, feelings of I've been betrayed and I'm angry, of those who have cut us off, put us asunder, separated us. The Holy Spirit wants to bring that love into your heart today. I want to pray with you. Lord, today people, like me, are struggling with wrongs done to us. Some supposed wrongs, some real. But in both cases, you desire the same response from our hearts. To love them, to have compassion on them, to not judge them and not put them asunder, but to treat them as you would treat them, Jesus. And so these things of our heart have to be dealt with. And I ask now in the name of Jesus that you would break the power of resentment and anger and bitterness in the heart of every person listening to this broadcast. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, We're out of time for the broadcast, but I need very quickly to say to you, December is a very difficult month for radio, and I need to hear from you. I think there was only one offering from a dear sister in the last two weeks. I ask, brother, sister, if this broadcast is of value to you, would you pour your heart out for us? that we could remain on the air in the month of January. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you can give online. If it's been a while, or if you have never given, would you respond? And thank you for those who gave so generously and covered the month of November. But now we're moving quickly through the month of December. Would you help? God bless you as you give. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. I love you. We'll talk soon.
0: His glory.